One of the things we have to watch for as we grow in the Lord, as we serve the Lord, is that we don't become, that it doesn't become common. Coming to church and reading the Bible and just being a good person. You know, there's a lot of sinners out there that are going to hell that are good moral people. So just being good and I don't smoke anymore, I don't drink and I don't have sex people with people that are not my wife, so I'm pretty moral, I'm good. That's not enough. And so a lot of times we can get into that routine and we need to ask God if we're in that routine, when we catch ourselves in that routine, we need to just fix our thoughts on God, bring our soul into submission and say, God, I refuse to just let the things of God become common to me. You need to violently oppose those things in your life and cry out, God, it can't, I can't just come to church, sing three fast ones, two slow ones, give my offering, hear a message, come to the altar, go home and go to public market afterwards. I, it cannot just be that. And so my prayer today is that God would just give us light. Revelation. My prayer for, for, for us today is, in, is what, what Paul said in Ephesians 1.17. There? Good. I'm a novice with these things. He said, I keep asking God that He would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So you can know Him better. He says, I keep asking God for that. I don't just throw it up once. I want you to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you could know him better. Not so that people could say about us that we know God so, that we know so much or wow, they're so intelligent, they're so this, they're so that. No, I want to know God. I want to have a spirit of wisdom. I want to have revelation so I could know him better. I want to know him better. And that was his prayer for the saints. And he didn't just pray that once. He kept praying it over and over and over and over again. And so today as we get in the Word of God, that's my prayer for us. That God will give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know Him better. My prayer is that it won't just be another sermon. You know, anytime anyone gets up to speak, whether it's PB or P-Son or P, P, uh, Pastor Joseph or, or any man of God or any servant of God that gets up, they've been praying, they've been seeking God, they've been fasting, they've been asking God, give me a word to share with your people. And, and, and you know, like Pastor, Pastor Benjamin, I, you know, there's been many times that there's been things going on on a Saturday, fun things. And he's like, I got to go. I can't stay long. Got to go prepare. So when a servant of God gets up to speak, they're not just rambling. They're speaking the word of God. And so my prayer is that today you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that this word would not just be words, but that it would bring light, that it would bring light, that you would be able to see, as it were, the very thing that I've been able to see through these texts. Amen? Psalm 132. If you turn there, Psalm 132, we're going to look at verse 13, not beginning in verse 1 this time, Doc, see, <laughs> 13, Psalm 132, verse 13, you got it? It says, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. 
This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling. He has desired it. He has chosen Zion. He says, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. God, from the beginning of time, wanted a dwelling with men. Since He created man, He wanted to have a dwelling with us. A dwelling place. He wanted to dwell with us. The fall came. We were separated from God. And God began His plan to redeem the world through Jesus Christ. And he begins by calling a man Abraham and so on and so forth. I'm not going to get into all that. He calls out the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, takes them to the desert, gives them the promised land. But before he gives them the promised land, he begins to give them instructions about a temple or a tabernacle. One of the first things he tells them is we got to set up, we have to set up a sacrificial system for you so I could dwell with you. So we're going to build an altar and you're going to bring sacrifices. And God goes into great detail, takes Moses up and gives him a revelation, takes him up to, to the third heaven basically and shows him this is exactly what I want down there. Comes down and he begins to tell us what he wants so that we can meet with him so he can dwell with us. This was not Moses' idea. It wasn't the children of Israel's idea. They weren't the ones that said, God, you know what? I think I need a God in my life. And so, you know, why don't you be my God and I'm going to make you this little temple over here where you can reign. No, it was his idea. In this verse, it says that he has desired it. He has desired it. God has desired to have a dwelling amongst mankind. It's his desire. He brings them out of Egypt, takes them, and in the, even in the desert, before they're even in the promised land, he, they set up this tabernacle. It was a tent, basically. And they would break it up, and they would build it back together. There was an altar there. There were sacrifices there. Because without blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There, your sins are not forgiven because... Just because God wanted to forgive your sins, there was blood that had, there has to be blood in exchange. And so he set up this offering system. Offerings, lambs, and all these things that pointed to the future reality. And he tell, and he told them, and, and basically there was a tent that housed the very presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, that symbolized the presence of God in their midst. And it was a tent. Basically, whenever they went, the cloud would be over it, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. It would be over it. Whenever the Spirit of God would move, they would have to just, at any moment, all right, the Levites got to break it down, take down the tent, take all the articles, and God had very specific ways with how they were to do it. And they moved on to the next place, and they had to put the tent back up, set the outer courts, set the altars, set up the showbread and the tables and the incense, and the priests had to put on their garments all this stuff, which was for the sake of God dwelling amongst his people. It was his idea. In Leviticus 26, verse 11 and 12, 
God says this. He says, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. He says, I'm going to put my dwelling place among you. I'm going to do it. You know, I want to emphasize this is God's idea. You know why? Because we walk with so much condemnation. A lot of the times we think, I got to make this happen. I, you know, God is real. I need you, God. I need your presence. Oh, God. What do you want me to do? You want me to quit my job? I'll quit my job. You want me to fast? I'll fast. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Oh, God, I need you to move. And God's like, this is my idea. I'm the one that called you. I wasn't thinking about God when I was smoking weed, selling dope, having sex, driving around in my 82 Camaro. God was the last thing on my mind. But he thought about me. And he went and he said, I want a dwelling place in your life. It was his idea. He said in Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, I am going to put my dwelling among you. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to walk among you. I'm going to walk among you. And I'm going to be your God. I want to be your God. And you are going to be my people. This is God's idea. This is God's idea. In Hebrews 8, verse 1 and 12, the author of Hebrews says this. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not man. He says we have a high priest, the real high priest, the one, he's talking to the Hebrews. They understood what he was talking about. There was a high priest who had to run this whole little setup, this whole little system of sacrifices and offerings and all these things that, that were in the old covenant. And he's telling them, look, we have a high priest who serves in the real temple. The one set up by the Lord, not by man. Set up by the Lord, not by man. God is the one that said, I want to establish my dwelling among you. Like we read in the first verse, we read in Psalm 132, he said, I have desired it. And as you, as, as you look through the, through the history of Israel, whenever their relationship with the temple was off, there was usually problems in their lives. They come out out of the desert, it's basically housed in a tabernacle, a tent. It's a portable temple. David comes on the scene and basically he has a desire and he says, I want to build God a house. You know, it's not right that God's presence should be in a little, in a little tent. I want to make him a permanent dwelling place, a glorious temple. He had it in his heart. In Psalm 132, if you read the whole Psalm, that's what David's talking about. I want to build God a house. I want to build him a house. God did not allow him to build him the house, but Solomon built the house made out of gold. Gold! And fine rubies. I mean, this thing was extravagant. And whenever, and, and, and just let me rewind real quick. 
when, when Saul was king and when Eli was the priest, it says that the lamp had went out in the house of God. The lamps, they went out. There was neglect there. And also the Ark of the Covenant had been captured, which symbolized the presence of God, the manifest presence of God. It was captured by the Philistines. And you know what? They didn't even miss it. They didn't even miss it. How many years was Saul king? Not once does he say, let's go get the ark back. Why is it in the Philistine camp? And the priest never once did he say, why? You know, the Bible, I mean, uh, the law said that we have to keep these lamps burning all the time. They must never go out. And the bread must be fresh. We need to make new loaves every day, new loaves every day. Not just old bread, new bread every day. And we got to keep the lamps burning. And the altar must always be burning. But it says in Eli's time, they had went out. The lamp of God had went out. And they're doing nothing about it. It was such a time of wickedness that the high priest, his two sons, were having sex with women in the temple. In the holy place. Nothing happened to them. Because the presence of God wasn't there. It was just a ritual. David becomes king. The first thing he does is, we got to go get the ark of God back. First thing he does, I want the presence of God in Jerusalem where he belongs. The manifest presence. You know how many Christians are just content with just this dry, lifeless, tasteless Christianity. Don't hear from God. Their God is all He is, is a scripture, words on a page. What if your wife, all she did was write you letters about her? That's it. Never saw her face, never held her hands, never hugged her, never got intimate with her. All she did was write letters to you about how much she loved you. I want to touch her and feel her and see her and have her hold me and hold her back. You understand? And this is what was happening. And David's like, no. No, 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 no. This is not right. We're bringing God's presence back. They bring the presence of God back. They bring the ark back. He wants to build a glorious temple. And then he's like, you know, David wants... His whole mission, his whole life mission was, God, I want to build you a house. Read the Psalms. It's over and over and over and over. And he's like, David even went past the law. He even, he even went past it. He even, he's the one that began to have Levites to worship 24-7. That wasn't in Leviticus or Exodus or Deuteronomy. He's the one that said, let's take this a little further. How about you guys do your little duties, but then let's have nonstop worship all the time. He was, his focus was always on the temple, always on the presence of God, the tabernacle. He had a good relationship with the tabernacle. But because of his sins and because of the things he did, he was a man of war. God said, look, David, I know that you have a desire to build me a house, but you've been a man of blood and a man of war. You can't build a house but your son's going to build it. So Solomon comes, he builds this glorious temple. Glorious temple. Made out of pure gold. Glorious. And what happens? 
When they dedicate the temple to God, it says that the presence of God was so thick that the priests couldn't even minister. They fell prostrate. They can't imagine the presence of God being so thick in here that we can't even preach or worship. We're just like, we just got to lay prostrate before the Lord. I heard a testimony about this man, uh, this revival, this Satan, uh, ex-Satanist that got saved in this powerful revival. And basically, in this revival, they were ending at 2 in the morning and people couldn't even walk home. They were like, trembling and like having to stop and you know just it was just amazing that's what happened and there was great joy and the manifest presence of God came on the temple the glory of God you understand the glory of God and not only that not only did the glory of God came it says the people were rejoicing they were rejoicing everyone was just rejoicing there was great rejoicing in the house amongst everyone why? Because things were right. They were in order. The house was important. The dwelling, God's dwelling with us. That's the vital thing. And we're going to devote ourselves to that. And after it was done, they rejoiced. And they went home blessed. And Solomon was like, this is a day of feasting. And he, out of his own money, his own treasure, he, he bought everyone food. He says, we're going to have a fat feast. It's on me. Great rejoicing. When they built the tabernacle in Moses' day, great rejoicing. They were bringing so much, they had to say, stop bringing stuff now. That's way too much. Calm down. Because they were so excited. When they went and brought the Ark of the Covenant back, is when David, you know that song, uh, when the Spirit of the Lord is on my heart, I will dance like David danced. That's when they were coming back with the Ark. They're like, we got it. We got the presence of God back. And they were dancing. He's taking off his clothes. And there's great rejoicing. Right? All of a sudden, they begin to slack off. Sin comes into the camp. The, 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 the kingdom's divided into Judah and Israel. Israel begins to worship idols and set up... A, they begin to have their own worship in another place with their own idols and their own priests. And all this stuff begins to happen. And pretty soon the house of God begins to get neglected. So much so that a king named Ahaz actually says, we're going to shut down the temple. We're going to close the doors down. He fired all the priests, closed the doors down. He's like, that's it. And he set up all his idols and abominations all throughout the land. And during this time, there's great, great, great war. Great fear. Great, they're, they're beginning to be enslaved to their enemies. Assyria begins to come and, and the Babylonians are starting to scope them out. And their whole surroundings, people are miserable and there's division all over the place. Why? The temple have begun to get neglected. And I'm just getting, I'm trying to make this fast. But if you read it, you'll see whenever there was great rejoicing and great victory, great men of God in leadership, they always had a very, very close and intimate relationship with the temple of God. And when there were wicked kings and wicked people and lukewarm people, it was, they didn't have a close relationship with the temple. It was neglected. Think about it. Just imagine this glorious temple made out of gold for 16 years. It's just shut down. And you see plywood up on the windows and graffiti all over it. But hallelujah. His son, Hezekiah, Ahaz dies. Hezekiah comes 
becomes the king. And Hezekiah had a great desire for the house of God. It says in the first month of the first year of his reign, he becomes king. What's the first thing he does? He says, we're going to open up the temple. It ain't right that the temple's been closed. We're going to open it up again. We're going to open it up. And he goes and he has a meeting with the Levites and the priests, and he says, come back to work, guys. We got to do this. Go consecrate the temple. I know they put idols in it and it's all messed up. Go clean it. It took two weeks. They cleaned it out. They purified it. They put everything in place. The Levites got themselves consecrated. And once again, they began to bring offerings and praises and sacrifices to God. All of a sudden, the people began to give. And for the first time since the days of Joshua, there was a great Passover. They had a Passover again. And he began to institute all the things that God told him to do. All the things they looked at as a burden. You know, think about it. Seven, how many of you ever been to a Christian conference for more than three days? Aren't they exciting? When I first got saved, I used to go to this conference in Colorado. Man, it was like heaven. Seven days, two, three day, times a day and night, preaching, prayer, fellowship every night. I didn't even know these people. And they're like, we're having fellowship at my house. And we'd just go over there. We'd go to Denny's and we'd be in the hotels. Hey, brother, what's up, man? How's it going? Yeah, I saw you. And we were just excited. I didn't sleep at all. It was exciting. It was like, yeah. Well, that's what God, he said, you're going to have feasts, a lot of feasts. You're going to have the Feast of Tabernacles, no work for seven days. You're going to have the Feast of Trumpets, no work. You're going to have the Feast of this. Every year, imagine three times a year, God commands you, you need a vacation. Three times a year. Man, that's exciting, ain't it? When we went to this, this retreat, this marriage retreat, it was exciting. I mean, we were in church all the time and talking about God, but it was exciting, man. It wasn't a drag. Oh, another service? Man. I was excited. I was just excited. I, you know what I mean? But the people of Israel were like, Passover, a vacation to get refreshed. Ah. Seven straight days of, of world-renowned speakers. Ah. How many years? from Joshua to Hezekiah, and there hadn't been a Passover like that. It's sad. I read that. My heart was broken, man. It says that when they did this, and then Hezekiah begins to try to bring unity. Israel was divided. They were basically judgment. The prophets were speaking major judgment. They're going to get judged. They're going to go to hell. They're going to get taken away as captives. Don't even associate with them. Don't go. And they were right. They were right. It was thus saith the Lord. It wasn't fake prophets. They were real prophets. But Hezekiah, when he has this Passover, it says he sends out letters. And he's like, look, whoever is willing, just come. Just get your heart right before the Lord. We're going to have a Passover. We're going to get this thing right. He tried to do it. He tried to unite the people. And it says... They ridiculed him. But some of them actually came, and they came. It says men from Reuben and Ephraim, they came from far away, and they're like, you know what, let's see what this dude Hezekiah is doing. There's a Passover. There's a Passover, man. I used to read about that in the history books. 
There's actually a Passover. Let's go to the Passover. And you know what? It says there was so much rejoicing. It says that when they left, the Israelites went back to their towns, destroying the false gods and the false altars on their way home. That's a fake God. Let's break that right now. And I'm going to just tear down this idol and just, uh, God is good. He reigns. They were excited. Anyway, they fell back into their sin. They're taken away. The Babylonians come and they destroy the temple. They level it to the ground. Burn it up with fire. And they, they get the city and they, they take them off as slaves. They only leave the weak and the poor amongst them. And everyone else, they go off as slaves to Babylon. They're conquered, killed, desecrated, re-lamentationed. Jeremiah's heart as he's walking around and seeing all, these, all this destruction and devastation. A couple of seven years later, they're freed from Babylon. God puts it on their heart, man, Nehemiah and Ezra, a couple of Israelites to go back and rebuild the temple. Serving before the king, Nehemiah, and he's like, what's wrong with you? He was like, man, how could I be happy when the temple of my God and the city of my fathers is ruined? He was like, what do you want me to do? He says, let me go back and fix it. Now, you've got to understand, this was a huge project. They had been in Babylon for 70 years. God told them that they, he said, pray for Babylon. That it would go well with them because it's going to go well with you. Plant houses. Build vineyards. While you're in captivity, just, you know, just rebuild your life. So when, it's, when he's saying, I'm going to go back and rebuild the city, it's like this isn't like two years ago. This is like, this is my granddad and great-granddad. I don't remember. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm from Babylon. This is where I'm raised, you know. This is my house. You know, I came from El Salvador. I was four years old when I came. You could talk to me. My mom tells me, do you remember this house we live in? And these people that live there? I'm like, no. I'm from Oakland. You know what I mean? Like I feel bad for a lot of stuff, but I can't really relate. I'm detached, you know. 